We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. This is Cheap Seat Reviews. Hello, and thank you for listening to Cheap Seat Reviews, the podcast that explores the Hollywood film industry for the greater good. For the greater good. That's right. This is episode 423, and tonight... We're doing something very different and very special. That's why the intro is different, and it's all about Star Trek. That's right. We are talking about the music of Star Trek. I'm so very excited. We did this a year ago, literally a calendar year ago, about the music of Star Wars. Now it's time to give the music of Star Trek a chance to to hear or to be heard by all our listeners. I am Sean Allred, and joining me tonight is Andrew, set phasers to stunning Jimison. Oh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to say that as tomorrow is American Thanksgiving here in the States, uh, I'm thankful for uh, my podcasting pals and thankful for uh, all these great composers that we're about to talk about. Well, that's very sweet. I appreciate that. Yeah. That was not prompted. I did not ask him to say that. So that was very, very nice of you. Your uh, Your new stickers are in the mail, however. Well, the, the audience can't see that I was flipping you off the whole time. Well, that's true. No. <laughs> that, so that does sound I like kid. something Sam would do. I kid. Yeah. Uh, also joining us is Sam is not a Trekkie, but loves good film scores. Vector. Absolutely. And Sean, I'm thankful for you dodging all of these attempts on your life so that I can keep trying. Oh, that's very sweet. That's probably yeah. one of the nicest things you've ever said to me on this podcast. <laughs> that that you have not succeeded in my death. That's very sweet. Right? Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. And, of course, making his return to the guest chair, the the composer's chair, uh, that's not a thing, but that's fine, is Eric knows more about film scores than the three of us combined from the Cinematic Sound <laughs> Radio podcast. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... Uh... Uh, just thank you very much for having me back. This is going to be a lot of fun, and may the force be with you. When I <laughs> when I sent you the message three months ago and said, "Hey, we're going to do you know a Star Trek month, and I want to do a music of Star Trek," the next mm-hmm. message was again. He takes a picture of a book that he has, uh, which he did. Yeah, the, which he did the last time. It was uh, it was like the 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 music of Star Trek, the book. Which he's now holding up in camera right now, which is amazing. <laughs> I wish you could see it, Sam. But uh, so we're we're so very excited to have you here, Eric, to talk to us to to help us educate both us and our listeners about the music of Trek. Because let's just let's face it it's it is a wide ocean of music to dive into. I mean, the music of Star Wars is fantastic. I, there's nothing that can be said anything other than it's just absolutely fantastic. But 
it's written by basically three guys. 90% of it's John Williams, and you have one movie by John Powell and another movie by uh, Michael Giacchino. But the music of Star Trek is, you know, a handful of different composers over 20, 30, 40 years. So it's going to be really interesting to see how things have changed throughout the decades uh, between the the shows and the movies and all that stuff. Uh, even, Even two different timelines of Trek. So I'm very excited for all of this. So welcome back, Eric, again. Thank you. Looking forward to this. So we're not going to do a typical five-word review. We're not going to do a game. We're not going to do any kind of the normal things that we do on the show. We're just going to talk about music, and we're going to play some music, and I'm just so excited. So uh, before I get into the original theme, and we're going to talk about the Alexander Courage theme for just a second, I I teased Eric right before we started. I said I put two musical cues in the new intro. Uh, for those of you who have listened for a while, that's actually the old style intro that we used to do before I, we had music written for us. But there was two cues in there that I wrote that I put in there just for you, Eric. Can you can you guess which two they were? Well, I'm I'm interested. Was it the alternate version of the Enterprise from uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture that you had in there? That is. So that so that that <laughs> that second or that third clip you heard was the original. You know, theme for the Enterprise in the the motion picture, to which the director didn't like, and he, really, yeah, he didn't like right. it. It was too seafaring, too oceany, too uh, open. He wanted something with a theme that you could hum, and so they forced Goldsmith to go back in and 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 rewrite it to what you would have to the theme huh. you would have now. Yeah, okay, pretty cool. It was. It was it close, was though. I mean, the, the germ of that theme is in there. You can hear it, but it's not developed enough. And even Goldsmith knew it right off the bat. I mean, and he had already written 30 minutes of music, and it just wasn't working. Even, I think, the the sound editors were like, what is this? This is, the, like you said, seafaring music. It doesn't sound bold. And so, yeah, Goldsmith went back, kind of reworked that theme because he didn't have a strong enough theme. So we reworked that into more um, uh, a bold, stronger march, something more along the lines of Star Wars um, than what he was trying to do. And that was, you know, history was made right there. And and that theme next to Courage's theme is probably the most well-known Star Trek theme uh, in the history of Star Trek. So and that's, it started that's out as, no, I'm sorry. It, it started out as Weller Man that we know today, right? As the sea shanty. The sea shanty. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Took, took Fast me a forward second. to twenty twenty one, and it was it was finally published as uh, Weller Man. Okay. Cool. Sorry. Continue. You're fine. No. <laughs> uh, it's always comforting to know that even composers sometimes have you know the great composers have issues coming up with something, right? Um, knowing that that there was a bit of a struggle here to to find the voice, um, you know, back in long time ago, I was wanting to be a, a music composition major, and uh, there was many times sitting down at the piano where I I didn't even know where to start. So that's 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 at least comforting that 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 was the case here as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of nice to know that these these epic men, these 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 giants and women, 
are oh yeah are human. Yeah. <laughs> you know they get it wrong. I mean, and there's worse saying... writer's block for for composers. Yeah. So I could totally see that. Not are to mention they're they're oh, more human. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, you're good. <laughs> I'm with it. No, but it's like you know you you. They pump like you, you see these guys, Zimmer and and Williams and all these guys pumping out so much music. You don't realize the the work it takes to get it. And I guess the people behind the scenes. I think we talked about this last time with uh, with Eric that um, there's a lot of people behind the scenes of these composers too that help them out. Yeah, that's true. And but it always comes down to. You know, that main composer, he's alone in his office and he's <laughs> got to somehow. And I mean, that's the thing. The the in inspiration has to happen quick because you yeah. only have four, six, maybe eight weeks to get however much music written. And I mean, there was hours for uh, for Star Trek here, Star Trek, the motion picture. Mm -hmm. um, other times you can just absolutely clash with the director and. Mm. Hopefully you are not fired. Now, what's an interesting story that was actually told by Paul Verhoeven on the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast, which came out a couple of weeks ago, was that they could not find the tone and the theme for Basic Instinct. They they kind of <laughs> knew what they wanted, but they didn't have that theme. And no matter what Jerry Goldsmith was trying, it wasn't working. And I think Verhoeven said that he rejected him or any or the melodies about four or five times before they got to a point in the middle of the film where we first um, uh, see Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone having a chat in the kitchen with the, uh, and she's uh, got the ice pick and she's smashing some ice. And in that cue, and I think it's only a couple of minutes long, is the theme that eventually became the main theme for the picture. And once Goldsmith had that, he said the rest of it was a piece of cake. But right. it took yep. that process to finally go, oh, wait, hold on. It's this tiny little cue, almost seems insignificant, but that's it. That's the, that's the story right there. Now let's expand on it. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I've written a couple of things um, just, you know, for high school band, nothing spectacular, but that always seems to be the case that you, you have almost writer's block. And then there's one motif that, that pops into your head and and that's it. Like it just that you takes that little spark to drive the rest of the composition. And that's what kind of it not blew me away. But the the one thing I didn't understand with Star Trek that that I've understood with a lot of other movies, especially Star Wars, because I am the 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 big Star Wars fan here, I guess, is that there's so much difference in the type of music in terms of it's not just the main Star Trek theme that that you think of that when when i played the, the playlist that that sean sent us i was i was pleasantly surprised at the difference in some of the music and and i really did i enjoyed it i thought it was a lot of fun that's good i'm i i, I like that i mean so eric helped me and by help me i mean he told me what to uh he create he crafted this playlist i just <laughs> i just physically put it together on youtube and sent it to you and yeah the you're right. The, the part of it was that the the list. I mean, I guess we could have just given you the the you know the opening or or ending credits of all of them. Now there's still enough differences in some of them, 
but for the most part, you know, one kind of sounds like five. Well, all the Goldsmith ones kind of sound the same. He he intros mm-hmm. with the theme and then right. gives you the movie's theme, right? Here's Star Trek theme, establishing Star Trek, just like John Williams says. This is Star Wars. And then, oh, now we're going to change it to to whatever the movie this is. But in Star Trek, you know, the, the, the big difference is, is, of course, is the first movie was done by Jerry Goldsmith. And I and for those listening, I guess I should have clarified, we are going to mainly talk about the films for, for yep. the show. We are going to get a little bit into the TV shows, just a little bit, but we're mainly a, a movie podcast. So I wanted to really clarify that we're going to primarily talk about the 13 films. Uh, but I did have a lot of fun doing the uh, the artwork for this week because there's a lot of instruments in the shows, yeah. by the way, that yeah. show up from clarinets to trombones to I saw a trumpet. Of course, you've got the Vulcan uh, harp that's on the, the artwork there. Um, the flute, I think, was in there somewhere. So, yeah, there's yep. a lot of music. Picard plays Trek. like a penny whistle at some point in one episode. Yep. Uh, Q shows up in a mariachi band. I mean, there's... <laughs> That's right. That's where I saw the trumpet, yep. <laughs> yeah. There, there's there's a lot of, you know, kind of fun, whatever. I think they're even in Voyager. Um, and Eric, forgive me, I don't know how big a Trekkie you are, but I know, I think in Voyager, one of the characters, Harry Kim, I think he does a clarinet recital. I mean... <laughs> When you're in space well, for a long time, you have to find something to entertain yourself, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but back to my point is that with the 13 films, we have, help me out here with some math here. We have one, two, three, four, five, diff- six different composers over, over 13 wow. films, right? Now, and why? Why did they decide to go to different composers? Uh, money was mostly the issue or the relationships that were orderly established between the director and the composer. Mm. So uh, Robert Wise directed Star Trek, the motion picture and worked with Jerry Goldsmith on the sand pebbles. And so they already had a relationship. And I mean, Jerry Goldsmith was about as hot of a composer as John Williams at that time. And so instead of going to John Williams, who has already written the star Wars, scores in the 70s i mean you go to the next best thing and that's jerry goldsmith so jerry goldsmith gets the motion picture however going over to star trek 2 the wrath of khan um star trek the motion picture didn't do well and so they basically slashed the budget and almost wanted to start from scratch and so they got a new director nicholas meyer uh and Therefore, with the slash budget, they couldn't afford to bring back Jerry Goldsmith. They wanted to bring him back, but they couldn't. And um, Meyer had worked with Nicholas Rocha on Time After Time um, a few years earlier, wanted him to score it, uh, but he couldn't. So they thought, let's go with somebody new. And that's how James Horner got in there. Uh, Meyer heard a, a tape, and I think it was of Battle uh, Beyond the Stars, and said, that's it. That's exactly what I want for my movie. And so they got James Horner really cheap in his, what was he, like mid-20s when he was doing Star Trek. And uh, and he was um, he was kept for three for continuity's sake because basically two and three is the same story. Right. What happened with four was that Nimoy actually wanted to work with Rosenman on three, but they decided to keep Horner for three. Um, I'm not sure why Horner wasn't asked back on four, but Nimoy uh, was directing that one as well and brought in Rosenman to complete the trilogy. So I'm 
really upset by that because I was really hoping that James Horner would would finish the musical trilogy of that, you know, Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, and, and uh, Voyage Home. Um, and then you had Shatner for Star Trek V, and he wanted to work with Goldsmith, so he finally brought back Goldsmith. Um, Nicholas Meyer again on Star Trek Six slash budget need a younger composer found a tape of Cliff Eidelman's music and that's who they picked and I think well Dennis and McCarth- and sorry now, while we're here I played just a moment there of uh of Wrath of Khan just a little bit there just to kind of for, for fun but to your point about Star Trek Six specifically the story I remember hearing reading seeing I don't remember where but this is one that I I remember my brain tells me is that Nicholas Meyer wanted to bring back. Um, Goldsmith and the budget because yeah, again that movie was I mean one of my favorite like budget cuts the scene at the beginning of the movie where they're sitting around the board table and they're yeah. having the meeting where they're talking about the Klingons are about to die that was at like Leonard Nimoy's synagogue's like their church um, you know fellowship hall right like that wasn't a sound like they couldn't afford a studio a set they literally went to somewhat a, a room and then just put pipe and drape around it, and, and like, like that's what that's the literally the this is a Star Trek film, and they couldn't. Oh, afford, say, which one is this again? Six which undiscovered number? country. Holy cow! So in a in a wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, just... and and they reused a whole bunch of next next generation sets as well. Um, the whole dinner sequence is in the uh, ready room, not the ready room. Um, in the uh, ten four the conference room. Oh, yeah, conference room. Uh, the conference room. Um that they use on next generation. And then a lot of the hallway shots are yeah. all next generation sets. Yeah. They, they, um, they cut the, it's, it's incredible. But from what I yeah. remember was that he, the originally not Meyer wanted to bring back. Was it Horner or Goldsmith? It probably would have been Horner. Yeah. Because he worked um, with him on two. Yeah. But then what but, he really wanted to do, he wanted to adapt Holtz's uh, the planets. Yeah. Into the score. Would, and again, would that would have cost him a fortune. Yeah. So, but also from what I remember, cause he said that he said, we want to do that. The version I heard, and maybe I'm wrong, is that he said, Hey, I want you to basically make it sound like Mars because war is the underlying theme for the movie. Yep. And Horner said, no, I'm going to write what I want to write. And then they said, well, this is what I want. And you know, Horner said, well, that's not what I'm going to do. And so he said, well, then I'll find this other guy who will do it. Do you think that he was afraid it, sound, it would sound too much like the Imperial March? Because that's where the source material came from, really, for Star Wars, for John Williams. I mean, it's possible. Right? I think Horner wanted to write his own music, and he didn't like the idea that the director was telling him what he was supposed to make his music sound like. And Yeah. And I think, well, that's interesting uh, because I mean Horner cribbed from classical music throughout his whole career. Well, they so, and, gosh, yeah. they all the time do. he's yeah. making a stand. He's like, "Damn it, I'm never doing it again." Yeah, <laughs> right. It could be also we were talking about the continuation of that trilogy with Wrath of Khan. Um, he was doing Aliens in 1984, and it could have been just a conflict of uh, Aliens uh, was 86. I mean, I'm yeah, sorry, I'm he, sorry. He 86. wanted to move yeah, on yeah. to other projects for sure. Um, uh, and I think he was honestly done with Star Trek after after three. Um, I just don't I don't know what the story is. I, I'm pretty sure again, Nimoy really wanted Rosamond for three, really wanted him, but um, I, I, it was either the studio or the other producer was like, no, 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 we need Horner because it's basically a like a continuation of two, like up to the second. Um, four, you can almost go in a different direction because that is a completely different movie, but it is still the third act of that trilogy. 
but it but it feels so different. You know, it's not yes. like it's the third. It's not like it's the the Return of the King. You know, I'm just saying it's it's well, Andrew, this works for you. It's as different as Back to the Future Three is to One and Two. I mean, because yeah. Back to the Future Three is in right. the Old West, like right. you know, it's a time travel movie, and mm-hmm. you know they're in 1985. So it's 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 okay that the score is different. Uh, Eric, you expressed some of your uh, thoughts about it earlier to me. Um, I, which I, I actually like it. I'll be honest though. There's not a piece of music from Star Trek that I don't like and don't enjoy and can't just put on right now and just get, you know, some satisfaction from. And yes, the Voyage Home score is very different. I mean, it hardly uses any of the Trek themes, motifs, anything. It's so different. We're talking about it. I'm going to play a little bit of it. It's just so, (laughs) it's just so different, but I think that's what makes it charming. So you get, you get the, Hey, this is a Star Trek movie. You get the little Star Trek thing that James, that uh, Jerry Goldsmith gave you. And we've already changed structure and now we're turning it into a comedy. Like, it's so different. Yeah, it sounds like a 1950s musical startup. Yeah. It, it just it just turned into a buddy cop film. A, a, a 70s buddy cop. Because that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's literally what this movie is. It's kind of a buddy cop. Because it's just Kirk and, and Spock doing funny things. And the rest of the crew's doing their own stuff. But. Yeah. Do you know, I mean, you were talking about the Star Trek soundtracks and and the score listening to any of it you know what it really makes me think of and as a child of the 90s growing up in North Carolina we had the Paramount Carowinds in Charlotte North Carolina and uh, every time I would go that's the music that was playing in the park I mean it was always playing and I feel like Star Trek was a part of that and it was I mean I remember going and seeing the Enterprise uh, in a little I guess it, I don't think it was a fountain, but it was a, you know, some sort of sculpture. Didn't didn't they have the assimilator or the Borg or some some sort of roller coaster that was themed? Yeah, yeah, so they had the Borg. Yeah, so uh, so for those who are not part of the uh, North Carolina listening audience, which is the majority of our listeners are not from <laughs> North Carolina, uh, which is funny, it's not even our top five state downloaded uh, download yeah. states. So you locals, what the hell are you doing? Uh, we have a theme park here in North Carolina called Carowinds, and for about 25 years, it was owned by Paramount. So uh, we had the Top Gun ride, and they had the Speed, not Speed, um, the Days of Thunder simulator yeah. experience. And you had, yeah, we had that too. Um, you had you had a handful of these other, you know, movie major motion picture. They had a Wayne's World was a section of the park, right? Um, and then eventually got bought out. But you're right, Sam. The the last ride that they installed there was called the Borg the Borg Assimilator. Yep. Uh, ride. And so the the way the ride worked is that the 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 cars were painted green like Borg, and you laid down on your back, and you you did the whole thing horizontally, as opposed to sitting in a chair. And so kind of like how the Borg when they are resting, they're standing vertically with those little charging things. The cool thing is is that they had these Borg mannequins out in the park. And when I went to work there, we, you know, Car- uh, Paramount had sold it to Cedar Fair at that point. And so they had to change the name of all the rides. So Top Gun became Afterburner. 
uh, the Borg became <laughs> Nighthawk. So it's it's like the the the, the mock off uh, uh, movies on like yeah Netflix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Whatever they're called. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and so they didn't know what to do with these, this Borg. So this Borg was in my tech shop. It was a six foot tall, two hundred pound Borg, and. And you know, and I, I would cut, when the first day that I worked there, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's the coolest thing ever!" And so, he, I eventually moved him into my office, so I could have this Borg in there, and he looked great. And then my co-host, my co-host, my co-manager, in a in an effort to be a dick, hit it in the park. And so oh. about a, a two or three weeks later, I found him and brought him back. And then they decided, <laughs> okay, well then. And they, they took a sawzall to him and completely destroyed him. Oh. And they left me just the head. They like literally <laughs> they put it in a gift bag and left it on my desk. I was so pissed. I was so mad. I that's mean, it's kind of funny. That's horrible. It is horrible. I mean, it was a that's piece a of... That's a horrible thing to do. It was a piece of film. <laughs> you laugh your head off. <laughs> it was just... It was a piece of like film history memorabilia. I mean, I knew I they couldn't... Can... They could have put like a you know serial killer notes you know, uh, you oh. know if you want to see your Borg again and send you a finger or yeah. something from it. just they just they cut the whole thing and we threw him away. I was so pissed. Aww. I brought the head home and my wife was like, "You can't keep that here, right?" Because because <laughs> my son had just been born and so she was like, "You're gonna yeah. freak him out." So anyway, uh, that was a fun little tangent, but. Yeah, uh, and it's funny, Andrew, just your memory of the park. I, I remember doing that, too, being at the park and listening for music and, like, playing the game of, oh, guess what soundtrack what that is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would get all excited when it was Star Trek. And uh, my, my, my other band friends that we would go to the park together, they're like, no one cares about Star Trek. I'm like, whatever, we're all band nerds. What are you, why are you getting mad? So, anyway. Um, I don't know where to go from here, except to say, <laughs> I'm trying because I don't have a script in front of me at all. Um, well, why don't you play some music? Play us uh, the the very first one you sent in that list. Yeah. Um, what? Did, which one? I, mean, I didn't look at the titles. I just listened to it. So, um, every so every tell me about it. Yeah. So we what you were sent was in chronological order, uh, okay. from from release. Again, I I sent you mostly just films. Mm-hmm. So what we talked about earlier in the show uh, of having um, the theme that Jerry Goldsmith wrote that had to be changed to this. So this is the final product. This is called The Enterprise. And in this part of the movie, this cue in the movie uh, or this scene is where the one thing you have to learn about the motion picture, if you've not seen it, and Sam, I know you ha- you haven't seen it, is... There's a lot of this movie where they're just standing around looking at things. There's a lot of that. Um, and it makes kind of for a boring movie when you're just watching actors look at things. And, But the one thing that the movie does do that most Trek fans like is that this movie is showing us the Enterprise for the first time since it was retrofitted from the, the show. So if you, have, you have to put yourself in 1979. You haven't seen the Enterprise in you know a physical enterprise in what 13 years is that math right no 10 crap yeah 13 years 
Sean does math. 12 years. So you, uh, so the director, Robert Wise, wanted to really have an opportunity to show off the Enterprise. So this queue is five minutes long. Five something. Six. Six, Six and a bit. Yeah. Five, my, my tag says 558. So we're staring at the Enterprise this entire time. For six minutes. Yeah, there, you do a slow voyage from the front of the Enterprise all the way to the back and wow. then around it into where they finally dock. The yeah. thing about this scene is it was actually directed by Douglas Trumbull because, uh, I mean, they're basically running out of time here uh, working on the special effects for this movie. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith wrote his final cue, sorry, recorded his final cue a week before the premiere in Washington, D.C., um, so they were still getting special effects done. But this is, I think from what I remember, this is Douglas Trumbull directing this sequence. And I think every single shot that he shot was used. Oh, wow. And that's why it's so long. Yeah. But it's beautiful. Well, can, you, can you imagine this first movie, the motion picture, without the soundtrack? No. Or without the score? No. no you I mean, could, it would have been, it, I mean, it wasn't great, you know, admittedly as a first film anyway, and it wasn't really well received, but without the soundtrack, it would have been garbage. I mean, people would have. Well, here's my question because I'd never watched any of the shows. The music from the movie. Is that brand new? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that, that he had maybe, maybe a cue from, from the show a little bit, but everything in the movie was brand new. Okay. Right. Well, and, and so we're coming up with kind of the climax where the camera pans around and we see the front of the Enterprise kind of the Enterprise gives us her full frontal and we get this moment <laughs> we get the theme I'm just going to let that breathe there for a moment you get that full moment and trying to put yourself in 1979, seeing that on the screen, like that would be so cool to have experienced that moment, that big impact. You know, the 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 the, the symbols crash as you see the front of the Enterprise for the first time. Because at that point, up to that point, we're just seeing these shots of you know the nacelles, which are like the the engines in the back and the side and mm -hmm. the neck and the top of the saucer. It's not until Scotty is literally flying this little shuttle where he goes out in front of the Enterprise and then turns it around so that Kirk can see the front with the, they've replaced the, it's called a deflector dish, that thing in the front, it's a blue light. You know, in the, yeah. in the TV show, it's a satellite dish where this is, so, you know, it's a blue light. But it gives it that, you know, that, that color in the front. It makes it really pretty. You know, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, or, I mean, obviously this is a later movie, but uh, Jurassic Park, when you see the dinosaurs for the first time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, right. That's a that, that's a that same wonder and same, you know, where you you sit back in your seat and you say, "Is this real? Is this is this what's happening in front of me?" So and in, interesting fact though, uh, in, Enterprise Full Frontal was the name of the adult film, <laughs> <that's so good. laughs> uh, and and did the music for that too. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Little known fact. Little known fact. That's good to know. <laughs> Uh, that's something I bet you Eric did, uh, didn't even know. No, no, I didn't. I'm, I'm learning something every day. Now, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that we get a 
Mm. We don't get this moment in. So the next time, the, the next time we have a moment like this, really, is in the new Trek. Yeah. Is in the, uh, the 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 Kelvin universe, where we get. There's this... a there's a there there are moments throughout where the Enterprise does get its due. Like there's a shorter version um, similar to this in Wrath of Khan. Um, there is a reveal. Yeah. Uh, and I know that they do a very short reveal of the new Enterprise for in Star Trek Four right at the end. But again, it's not as uh, let's say epic as the as the first one. And by then, even like leaving dry dock is not a special thing in in Star Trek Six. It just kind of happens within about a, a minute and a half. <laughs> so, yeah, people. And you know what? And that's actually funny. Star Trek generations i mean you talk about the love of the enterprise the first shot of the enterprise in star trek generations is probably one of the most generic shots you've ever seen of the enterprise it looked like a shot straight out of the television series so that ship got no love in that film and then even the new enterprise after that in uh first contact got um a very slow playing of the uh, of uh, a snippet of the enterprise um cue from star trek the motion picture so yeah as it went on you don't really find the love for for the Enterprise in, until we then, yeah, get to Giacchino. And still, it's a very short sequence, but when you do see it, it's a pretty amazing moment. Yeah, the yeah, you're not wrong. And it's funny, I thought lots you were going to... Lots of gonna, lens flares, yeah. There are a lot of lens lots, flares, yes. but yeah, they could have... Maybe they could have paid Giacchino more to, to cut down on the lens flare budget. But they... Yeah, where I thought you were going to go is because the first time you you see the Enterprise in Generations, it's actually it's a sailing ship. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that too. It's yeah, a, it's a boat, um, uh, and that it, might get more screen time than the actual ship itself. The ship doesn't <laughs> get does. a lot of screen time. I will say this: they, they they did get to use they get to play with some CGI with the ship. Uh, they mm-hmm. actually did get to do some CGI. So when there there is a battle with a with a bird of prey, mm-hmm. and they get to do a little bit of CGI with the shields and things like that. But again, yeah. for the most part, it's just the ship is there to die because we've seen the ship for seven years on the TV show and we are ready to move on. But to your point, in First Contact, we don't get a chance to really have the moment, right? Because when we see no. it for the first time, it's it's just in space floating around and yeah. we don't, you know, oh, you know, here it is, <laughs> you know, like there's the ship. We've never seen this ship before. We don't know anything about it other than it's Enterprise E, and it looks very different. But mm-hmm. there it is. I mean, we don't really get to see her uh, until she's engaged in the Borg in the space battle. So, uh, anyway. Uh, but, and then again, like you said, Giacchino's, you get 30 seconds, maybe maybe 45 seconds. But Giacchino yeah. makes it count. Absolutely nails it. With, yes. uh, that's one of my favorite uh, tracks that I've got on my my phone because yeah, that absolutely his score is just blows me away. Well, I love and it. that's why I put it in the intro because it's such a and that's that cue. That cue is called "Enterprising Young Men," and it's yeah. when Kirk and McCoy are going up to the Enterprise for the first time, and McCoy gets to be the audience and say, "Would you look at that?" He's yeah. literally telling the audience, "Pay attention, the ship is going to look <laughs> different." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he was right. It is very different and uh, bigger. That that the Kelvin Enterprise is like one and a half times bigger than the other Enterprise from the original series. Uh, so 
that or, or that first clip that I played, of course, being from <laughs> the motion picture. So then we move on to Wrath of Khan, which we talked about James Horner and uh, and and also in the search for Spock. Now I played a little bit, uh, and Eric and I have talked about several times. Both of us, we both love the 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 Mutara battle in Wrath of Khan, right when they're having the the the, the battle the space battle at the end. We love that track. And I also love this one. I, I do the funny story about this particular track, which is called Kirk's Explosive Reply. So this is when Khan has tricked them, and the Enterprise is pretty busted up, right? Yeah. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. So I watched this movie with my son not that long ago. And... About a week ago, we were hanging out on a Saturday, and my son says, hey, can we watch Wrath of Khan again? Which, of course, lit me up. I was stoked that he <laughs> wanted to watch it again. I'm like, absolutely, let's do it. So I put it on. And this is his favorite scene, because this is what he quote. And Sam, I know you, haven't, you probably haven't seen it in a while, but this is the scene where they, where they use what is called the prefix code, where they use the Enterprise's computer to tell the Reliance computer to t- turn its shields down so they can shoot, you know, shoot back and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Well, to Declan, that's hacking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So to him, he's like, they hack the Reliant. So I start, I'm playing this cue, right, in pre- pre- preparation for this um, this episode. I'm, I'm listening to this music on our car, car trip we went on. And my son says, hey, this sounds like the scene when they're hacking the Reliant. And I'm like, yes, this is exactly what this is from. <laughs> and I love that you call it hacking. So that I, I just made me really, really, really happy that he did that. Just the, the hacking of the uh, <laughs> Reliant. <laughs> but yeah, this, this, this particular cue, just, it's just so good. This is where they're, uh, they're doing their hacking right now. Now Khan is worried because the shields are dropping and stuff's about to get real. Listen to those keyboards. That mallet. like the sound of the drumsticks the, the two drumsticks you know the click 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 yeah, yeah. always like that I really those are like actually uh, uh, bows uh, being slapped against the strings oh is that I what forgot that is? I forgot what the device is called there's actually it is called something but they they will take their bows and they slap it up against the uh, you hear it all huh. the time in like the wooden like corner scores he does it all yeah. the time uh, in the aliens he uses that plus the necoplex um, but it's just this slap from the bow right on the strings, and it makes that kind of clack sound. 
That's cool. That is really cool. I, I yeah. like that a lot. I didn't know that. And thank you for telling me. See, the three of us are brass players. So. <laughs> 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 uh, and, you you and, hear that device in horror scores all the time. That's but really, I mean, I, I, the reason I the reason I sent that cue to you because I mean everybody loves you know the Battle of Matura Nebula, Nebula or you know the main theme or even Spock's death and all that sort of stuff. The the best thing about that is that it really plays to the character of of uh, of Kirk because he literally says you know he got caught with his britches down, and you can see him scrambling. But the, but what's happening with the music? It's just kind of telling you that Kirk pretty much has this one under control and he is definitely going to get out of this. And that happens happens with that kind of slow pulse that builds and builds and builds and builds until that barrage of, of uh, laser fire. But you also kind of hear how clever he is as a captain and why he is the captain of this ship. And that's with the, the underlining playing of his, of the, that Star Trek theme. And I just like that, we as an audience, we, I mean, we do see it, but we know that, Hey, you know what? This guy's got, uh, got something up his sleeve and he's really going to get out of this one, even though he got absolutely smoked about five minutes before that, which again, contains an absolutely enormous, um, action cue. But I think that's, what's so great about this. And that's what Horner does so well. Horner really, really, um, captures, um, the spirit of the character, uh, with his music. I mean, he's a great emotional composer as well, but he really understands the nuances of uh, the characters uh, that he was scoring. One thing that we didn't really touch on and I kind of wanted to go back to for just a moment is I, I realized that, uh, and I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you, we pulled any from it, but the one other really great thing from the motion picture that we got that we didn't get uh, we got uh, the Enterprise theme. But the other thing that that movie gave us, and I don't know if this is queued up right, I'm just going to play it and see what happens, is we get this. The Klingon theme. Mm-hmm. That's just so great. That noise there, that was what Steven, uh, a few episodes ago, kept making reference to, that dong noise that was the, the yeah, thing. Yeah, it's called the blaster beam. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Craig Huxley. Wow. And it was used in two other scores that year as well, Meteor and uh, the Black Hole, and James Horner would use it in Battle Beyond the Stars and in Star Trek Two. I was going to say, isn't Horner the one that seems to use a lot of his own stuff in other movies? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I That's, mean, you can, it, that yeah, drives you can me hear nuts. aliens in that uh, in that cue yeah. that we played um, for sure. It, well, another thing that he loves to do is that trumpet riff. He loves. Oh da-da-da. yeah, the four note danger oh, yeah. motif. Yeah, he he uses that. I mean, it, we're I can be watching a movie, not know who the score is, and hear that and go, <laughs> oh, because oh, he, he used it. I know he used it a bunch in Enemy at the Gates. He used it yep. in Apollo thirteen. Like, uh, yep. Like you just but um oh okay got it I, I know who someone's we are. in trouble yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah the bad guys in trouble but what I love about this this score here specifically is what what Goldsmith did brilliantly because at the at the time you know we had interaction with the Klingons in the original series 
Mm-hmm. And Robert Wise decided, you know what? We're going to make these, these Klingons look different. I'm going to completely change the way they look and the way they sound, everything. I'm going to change their ships. And, of course, in 1979, we didn't have the internet to freak the hell out like what they did when they changed the Klingon look and ships in Discovery. People lost their <laughs> collective minds. But no one cared back in 1979 because they looked cooler. And yeah. he gives us this theme with nothing to go on. We don't know anything about the Klingons, this this version of them, at all. And he gives us this just really cool, just this... This kind of menacing. It's just very primal and raw. I was going to say, it's it's almost like a, uh, I don't know, a motif that would remind me of a, a barbarian attack or mm-hmm. a, um, you know, a tribal attack of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the instrumentation would be used by all composers going forward to represent their own Klingon material. And, uh, I mean, you'll, you'll hear, doesn't matter whether it's in television or the movies, um, even Horner's material sounds, uh, from, uh, Star Trek three has that similar orchestration. Um, and, and Goldsmith actually it wasn't Goldsmith. I think it was actually Joel Goldsmith cause he co-composed, uh, first, um, first contact where they decided to reuse that theme but in a heroic mode and it became Worf's theme um, for the generations uh, pictures and I thought that was a stroke of genius um, but yeah the, the 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 instrumentation the feel of it it was all Jerry Goldsmith Jerry Goldsmith created the template for for Klingons um, from 1979 on and he uses it brilliantly now I'm I'm kind of guessing here on the track because I don't have it fully queued up. But in Star Trek First Contact, when the Borg are fighting uh, the, the, the fleet, there's this massive space battle going on. And nothing we have seen at this scale on Star, on Star Trek yet. We have not seen. This is Star Wars level action. <laughs> and then we get to see the ship The Defiant, which... The last time we saw Worf was on the Defiant with in Deep Space Nine. So we wanted him in the movie. So we had to find a way to get him into the movie somehow. And there he is. <laughs> so he's on the Defiant, and the Defiant is like on fire. It's getting its butt kicked. And so Worf pops up. And you get this theme, and the, the the helmsman says, "Weapons are offline, shields are offline. We're we all we got left is engines." And then Worf slams his hands down on the console and says, "Perhaps today is a good day to die." Ramming speed. I mean, that's how that's how Worf is, right? He's a Klingon, right? Like, if I can't defeat <laughs> you, I'm going to die trying. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take you with me. Right, yeah. and so he engages, you know, the sh- the engines, whatever, and then the Enterprise, you know, swoops in to to save the day and save Worf. Beams up all the survivors onto the Enterprise. Worf comes onto the bridge <laughs> where where the um, uh, where Riker gets to say this line. He says, "Right, Worf says, what about the Defiant?'" 
And he, he says, well, it's adrift, but salvageable. And then Riker says, it's a tough little ship. And that's when Worf goes, little? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's all upset about it. Because it's a small ship, but it's, it's a good ship. So anyway, it's that little moment. But we, we, get to hear that, we get to hear that theme again, and we get excited. Oh, it's Worf, and it's yeah. his theme, and it's great. So it's, and it plays again uh, during the, uh, the dish sequence. In uh, first contact, yeah, yeah, when they're having the the battle on yeah. the on the so he gets another heroic moment and great playing of that theme, which you know, because which was good because up until that moment, it's kind of a punchline because Worf, they said, hey, uh, do you remember your zero gravity training in the academy? Yeah. And he goes, yeah, I remember throwing up in my my spacesuit because <laughs> um, <laughs> he gets you know he gets motion sickness. Um, I do kind of feel bad for Worf sometimes. He kind of turns into a punchline a few too many times. But So we, we talked about the voyage home and how very different it is, and I already played a, a cue from that. So we get past the voyage home, and you mentioned, so we get into Star Trek V, and William Shatner comes back in, or not come back, but he comes in to direct, which we reviewed not that long ago. And, you know, it's a bad movie, but that's fine. We had a good time with it. Hmm. And... Uh, I mean, you know, right, Andrew? You know, there's no disagreement there, right? I don't think that's a, a stretch to say. No, I mean, it. yeah, it definitely was a bad movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we also all agreed the score is great. Jerry Goldsmith, I mean, yeah, it is definitely. absolutely the best part of the movie, in my opinion. In a, in a movie full of some bad jokes and bad CGI, I mean, Eric, you want to talk about cutting the budget. Um, yeah, it was it's the, unfortunate. It really is. It was the first of the Trek films to not use industrial light and magic. Yeah. And it shows. I yeah, mean, there's some bad stuff. And and Eric, I almost wish you could have been on for that episode too, though. Our guests were fantastic. Jesse and, and Cameron were fantastic on that episode. But Yeah, I mean, I, I would have told you that I liked the movie. So that would have been a nice contrast too. Well, and again, <laughs> and I don't hate the movie. Don't get me wrong. And I don't think any of us, I think Andrew was the only one that was like, you didn't really like it because you were a little confused. I just because, found it very cartoony. Yeah. None of us hate it. Yeah. It's Is that the just slapstick like, one? Yeah. There's a little okay. bit of slapstick, yeah. I mean, Scotty yeah. hits his head on a on a yeah. beam and... You hear it burns. Yeah, yeah it's we, by we, no means great. I just think that... I don't think it's good. <laughs> but, I think there... <laughs> I think if, if Shatner didn't have to go through what he went through, I I think the, the idea of the film... Um, you know, going where no one has gone before, that theme really, really resonates in this one. Um, you're going and finding the unknown. And I, I love that aspect about it. And I also love the the interaction between the three main characters, uh, something you don't necessarily get in the other four films. And I think they are incredibly strong performances as well. But yeah, it's just, there was just so much hanging over this movie there was no way it was going to be um there was no way it was going to be good and i i really feel bad for for shatner and i wish that he could go back and finish it the way that he wanted it to be because i think that more would appreciate the film for what it is and i mean as i said there's there's good ideas there's really good acting as well um but yeah it just ended up being a total disaster so he was pretty much handcuffed for that. He one. was. 
handcuffed. He was. He was handcuffed by by lots of different things, and we we talked about it. And I know Aunt Sam, you weren't there. We did talk about at length that the movie has the there's there's so much potential. Yep. In the movie for what what Shatner was trying to do, right? Yeah. And in, in that, and it shows. The problem is, is that. And again, I don't want to rehash a whole episode that we spent two hours talking about this movie. <laughs> but, you know, the, the movie suffered from a, a lack of budget, but a little bit of lack of continuity. There, it gets confusing. I, I think the movie forgets what it's trying to be. Is it just about exploring the unknown? Is it about, is is Cybok really a bad guy? Like we, like, we don't know a lot of these things, and a lot of these answers we don't, we don't find out. And so, right. anyway, but what we do know is the score <laughs> is absolutely beautiful. Jer- again, Jerry uh-huh. Goldsmith just knocks it out of the park. And this this cue called A Busy Man, it's just this really beautiful. I didn't tell you that that was Star Trek. You could, I would say that that sounds like an unused cue from like the Sound of Music or something. You know, like it's just <laughs> well, and there is something to be said about the the Sound of Trek because all of this stuff, even through all the composers, it has an an outer space feel to it. It's almost like it's really close to a sci fi esque. Uh, you know, if you think of the old nineteen fifties uh, black and white movies where they use kind of that, I don't even know what the name of the instrument would be, but it's... it's Theremin? Yeah, the Theremin? Maybe. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, I feel that a lot in these, these soundtracks. Well, a lot of them use the Theremin. I mean, the obviously the, the intro, the, the Alexander Courage intro, does mm-hmm. use the Theremin. The, the Star Trek The New Wor- Strange New Worlds intro... That you heard in our in our intro, though I started talking mm-hmm. over it. It ends with the theremin using that playing that theme, mm-hmm. and and that was the other cue. <laughs> I forgot we forgot to finish <laughs> playing that game, Eric. I put that cue in just for you, also because you you said you hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I actually rather let's in- torture our guests. Thank you, Sean. Well, you know. <laughs> If you've been a guest on for more than twice, I think it's okay for me to bother you a little yeah, bit. I'm fine with that. It, it 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 is a very different score. Um, it it because uh, it's not really its own thing. It's just a modern version of the original Alexander Courage. Yep. Space. The final frontier. You get Anson Mount saying some cool things. You still get the bells. These are the, the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. And then it turns into a rock concert. That's that's the Alexander Courage theme. There. Uh, 
think the phrase you used was you, the, the bastardized version of. Uh, yeah. Oh. It, it kind of is. It kind of is. Now it does. It's it sounds like a, one of those you know side aisle soundtracks that you would get at Walmart that uh, well, that has a generic picture on the front. Generic. Yeah, I think it's just their attempt to say, "Hey, we're modern," yeah. and they failed. I well, so. I don't and think it, it I, failed. I, just, I, I what I really like about again, I'm reading in Trek TV, but I just like each of these shows to have their own distinct theme. And on top of that, I'm a huge fan of Nami Melamad, who's the composer of the show itself. Um, she's a protege of uh, Michael Chikino's. Um, an absolutely incredible composer. And I kind of wish that she had a chance to write her own theme because she never got a chance mm -hmm. to write it on Prodigy. <laughs> Michael Chikino wrote the theme for Prodigy, and she wrote the scores for that series. So... I was just hoping that she'd be able to knock something out of the park and that was distinctly Strange New Worlds because I always consider that Star Trek, that theme, not the fanfare. I don't mind the fanfare. The fanfare is is fine, you know, over top of the um, the, the intro there. But um, I was hoping that this show would get its own identity, but it didn't. And, and I know that neither one of you, Andrew or Sam, have watched Strange New Worlds. I have and absolutely positively love it. It's probably, it's my favorite Trek since, uh, okay, I'm going to take Lower Decks and put it to the side. Lower Decks is a different thing entirely. Like, mm -hmm. Lower Decks is amazing and fantastic and deserves all of the praise that it that it gets. But it's... Isn't Strange New Worlds set in the Kelvin timeline? No. So Strange New no. Worlds is just, you know, a modern version. It's so, basically, it's what, it's the stories of the Enterprise before... Star Trek, the original the TOS, the original series. Oh, okay. So it's the Enterprise, because when Kirk becomes captain of the Enterprise, she had already been in space. She had already done uh, part of the five-year mission. Yeah. And then uh, Kirk takes over for Captain Pike. Hmm. So this is a 10-episode series just of Captain Pike. And the reason why we got this is mainly because in Discovery Season 2, Anson Mount comes in. Anson Mount, we know him from Hell on Wheels and the guy what can't say things or he'll explode people from the Inhumans TV show and his 30-second <laughs> cameo in Doctor Strange 2. Um, mm -hmm. he, he did such a great job as Captain Pike in Discovery Season 2 that fans said, you have to give him a show mm -hmm. because he is everything that we love in Star Trek. And so Paramount listened and said, "Okay, here's a budget, here's a show, here's a crew, here's a cast. We're gonna, you know, and they because they gave us Spock. We got to meet, we got to see Spock in season one and two of Discovery, or maybe just season two of Discovery. And uh, it's great. Strange New Worlds is great. I mean, it's really good. It is as Trek as Trek can be, and it's awesome. And yep. and it's funny because." Eric, when you when you like the first time I heard this the the theme, I actually really liked it because I like the original theme, and to me it's just like okay, well this is just these are the stories. This is the prequel stories to the TOS show. So why why wouldn't it be similar? But then the more I thought about it, it was kind of like well, it would have been nice if it had its own voice yeah. because Discovery mm -hmm. has its own voice. And yep. Discovery is 
around the same time. I mean, Discovery is also right before TOS. What about the uh, the not Eric Bana, um, the 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 old Enterprise? It's Enterprise show, right? Called Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there is the Enterprise. Yeah. Is that the same timeline as this one, or so that's so the everything is the same timeline except the three J.J. Uh, Abrams movies, the Kelvin. Uh, movies okay everything else all the tv shows everything is the same timeline except those three movies so don't worry about timelines and stuff like that it's just knowing the order of the of the whatever so enterprise is first in historical succession right that those so you're saying this undiscovered not undiscovered um uh, strange new worlds uses the same theme as the original yeah, so that's I, what that's what you just heard, right? So what? Yeah, this, this is a where no one has gone before. Well, the reason I ask is because yeah, there's a lot of people don't... that are very are very upset that Game of Thrones, House of Dragon, used the same intro music as the original show. Yeah, I agree. That was stupid too. That's lazy. <laughs> that's just lazy. That is kind of lazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I didn't um, know that. But, but don't get don't get confused here where Enterprise wasn't like the original series. So I mean you have the original series that was James Kirk. You know, or not James that Kirk. Was, yeah. Uh, Enterprise came later Shatter. but told a prequel story. Yeah. I was just trying to figure out where the Enterprise was to Strange New Worlds. So okay. Little little fun Star Trek lesson. Tuck in. <laughs> the TV show Enterprise. We want to make sure we get our terminology right. The TV show Enterprise, which starred Jonathan Archer, which was played by Scott Bakula. Thank you, Scott Bakula. That's who I was trying to think of. Those are okay. in the early days of the Federation. Like the Federation doesn't exist yet. They their 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 series finale is them literally forming the United Federation of Planets, and it's their uh, their adventures meeting the Klingons for the first time, meeting a couple of other species, and then we had um, the. The the Zindi Wars, I think, is what it called. Is is called, and mm-hmm. that was with the Enterprise. Was called the NX zero one. NX means um, that it was a prototype. It was the NX zero one, the first ship. And then, fifty to a hundred years later, is the storyline of Strange New Worlds, Discovery, and then five years later will be the original series, and then ten years later. We start the the series of the movies, the six movies. Okay. And then fifty years later, after Kirk, is the next generation. And then we have with Patrick Stewart. With Patrick Stewart. And then we have those okay. seven years. And then within that seven year sp- time, we spawn off uh, Deep Space Nine and then Voyager. And there, those are all within the same handful of years, whatever. And then. After that, we have Lower Decks, the cartoon, and then past that, another 50, not 50, another 10 years past Lower Decks will be uh, is Picard, the show uh, Star Trek Picard. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, the neat thing about Picard is, so the Kelvin movies created a, a moment in the, what we call the main timeline, which is the supernova happens, right? You remember from the, the plot? where this supernova yeah. happens and Spock goes to stop it. Well, that supernova happens and Romulus is destroyed. So Picard picks up after that and Romulans are kind of, they're refugees. 
and <laughs> there's there's a lot of there's a lot of there's some political stuff happening there along with some other things. So that's Picard is post uh, supernova and all that stuff, and it's dealing with the aftermath of that. So there's your there's your timeline primer or primer, however you want to pronounce it. Okay, so I didn't really want to talk too much about the shows, but I, I, we, I, I did bring it up, whatever. Well, I mean, the music, it, it, it goes from shows to movies, right? So you've got to use some of the same themes. you got to use, you know, to get people, uh, I don't know, familiar. Um, everything in a movie should be amplified from a show, yeah. I think. So, well, and I think, but, it, I think it also, you know, it, it's kind of like how in the Marvel universe, they've sprinkled in that, uh, 98, was it 98? I don't know what you're uh, X-Men. Oh, uh, yeah. The oh X-Men yeah. Theme, yeah. The animated yeah. series theme. Yep. Yeah, they kind of sprinkle that in there to kind of say, Hey, th- we're talking about X-Men. Um, I, I don't know how people feel about that, but, um, th- you're uh, right. There is, there needs to be some familiarity, but at the same time, originality. Yeah. And that's where it's. I'm sure that's difficult as a composer. Well, and so yeah, specifically, and I think Eric might have touched on this earlier. So the 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 theme that we get in uh, Enterprise, uh, sorry, not the Enterprise, but the motion picture, mm-hmm. not not the Enterprise theme, not the not this part, but there's a part earlier in the movie. That is 100%, I mean, Eric, you might correct me, but it's basically what will become the next generation theme. Correct. Really? I mean, well, it's... I mean the, the main title, the main theme from that film then becomes reused as for the next generation theme. And uh, uh. many new Trekkies who grew up only watching the next generation thought that that was written for next generation. They didn't realize... <laughs> It actually came out in 1979 as part of the motion picture. So, yeah, Goldsmith and, well, Alexander Courage and Goldsmith um, got co-credit for the Next Generation um, composition. Um, Yeah, so it's a bit confusing. (laughs) And by the way, I mean, uh, um, who was it? Uh, Dennis McCarthy actually wrote a new main title for next generation that was rejected, but you can hear it on one of the albums. And it was used as the main theme for the, uh, the, the, the two part pilot. So you can hear it, um, play a couple of times in that, uh, that pilot episode. So here you go. Like this is the motion picture. Yep. Yeah. Like that is, the next generation theme. Yeah. And I, and I think many people right. were confused as to why the next generation theme was playing in Star Trek five. I swear that happened. <laughs> yeah. like, What's going on? It doesn't make any sense. But if you're, if you're like me, I saw, uh, some, several of the next generation episodes before I ever saw, um, any of the movies. So I knew that theme kind of like what you were saying. Yeah. As, well, I, I grew up, yeah, I'm with you there where I grew up. That was the Star Trek theme. That's yeah. what I thought it yeah. was until what, you know, Sean forced me to watch some of this stuff. And it, and it kind of was, I mean, that kind of is the de facto Star Trek theme. I mean, the Alexander courage theme is very recognizable too, but it, you know, that 
that kind of is what's referred to as kind of the theme of Star Trek. Now, to the point that Eric made about, you know, having your own voice, that was the other thing that really, that, that Trek fans really liked is that, so the Next Generation theme was not just a rehash of the Alexander Courage theme. It was its own thing. It was different. Right. So that when Deep Space Nine comes out, it comes out with its own theme, and it is amazing. Now, it's not uh, Goldsmith. Uh, remind me who it is, Eric. Yeah, Denim, Dennis McCarthy. Dennis McCarthy. But yeah. it was supposed to be Goldsmith. Yeah. But it's not, and it's my favorite. It is my favorite of the Star Trek show's themes. I love this. This gets me pumped every time. And again, in typical Star Trek form, the intro is just beautiful sweeping shots of the thing, right? In the next gen, it's just the Enterprise whizzing by the camera. And this one, it's just a space station and things are moving around, the camera's going around it. But it's this beautiful... <laughs> but, but it's, like, it's just... Ah, it just, it just, just gets, it gives me hope. You know what I'm saying? It's just so beautiful. And such power. Here we go. Another big hit. And I think we're playing the updated... Seasons four to six. Version. Yeah, it says HQ. So I don't know. yeah, because they, they, you remember the intro changed. Yeah. Um, after season three, because they made it more busy, so they wanted to make the theme not as uh, lonely as it was in one through the season. Three. Yeah, and they added the defiant and some other stuff. Too. Yeah. They they needed the they needed the crew to go somewhere else besides the space station, which is why they right. made it. <laughs> I'll admit, not that Sam or Andrew, you're ever going to dive into Deep Space Nine. I did. Oh, you should. Uh, I did at the urging of some of my friends. And after about seven or eight episodes, I said, guys, tell me it gets better because this it is. It does. It's just, I did the same thing. Yeah. I did the exact same thing. I told my friends, I said, this sucks. It sucks. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> but like most Trek series, it takes about three seasons for it to pick up steam. Holy and my crap. God, it's great. Like, Sam. Why does it have to take that long, though? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, I say that's you're, a you're lot of patience. Just trying to, trying to feel it out because it was really new. Right, it was almost like a, a soap opera, a Star Trek soap opera on a space station. Because like, like that um, Sean said, like where can you go? And yeah. so you're developing your 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 new characters and your bad guys and whatever. But man, it is so worth the wait. It's my favorite it, Trek TV show. It, it is again. Like you remember Sam when I was like, hey, you're gonna watch Clone Wars, right? And you're like, oh man, that that movie was bad. And then you're yeah. like, dude. These first fifteen episodes of Clone Wars is bad. I'm like, I know, just yeah. you have to suffer they season are. one They're before. So you... bad. It's the same thing. Like it took. I wouldn't say to season four. I I think. By... No, it was three. It was like once 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 you got past two, there was some great stuff in two, but then yeah. season three, that's where they I it think really hit their gets stride. Good. Yeah. It, there, there's yeah. more intrigue. There's some political stuff. There's also some yeah. really interesting religious elements to the show. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's, it's infuriating. Yes, <laughs> it's, it is one of those things where you 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 kind of look at, regardless of what you believe or whatever. There's mm -hmm. a couple of moments where you're like, God, organized religion sucks. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Just yeah. one of those things. And then, 
And then, so sparked from that show, then we get Voyager. And now we get to have uh, Jerry Goldsmith gets to come back, and he gets to flex his muscles with a little bit of a, a muted trumpet and some timpani. And of course, this one has a lot of really, really beautiful shots of Mm -hmm. a Voyager flying by planets and going by stuff. It's it really kind of gives that, yeah, just. Um, it's my favorite Trek theme and favorite TV theme of all time. Well, and how can you be a brass player and not love that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm not a horn player. I, I play baritone, but holy crap, the horn parts are just. Well, like and you it, were talking about, you know, the sound of a busy man in um, Star Trek V. You should listen to the strings when they pop up in this theme. Gorgeous. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, here we go. I'm going yeah. to pull this back up. Go ahead, Andrew. No, I was just going to say, usually when we, usually when an audience goes, man, there's something about this I really love, there's a French horn in there just wailing away. <laughs> 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 so good. Well, and my and my dad played French horn, right? My mom and dad both played French horn. Dad was a French horn, you know, major. He was a band director for 30 years. And and he, he we watched this every night. Voyager. This was the one show where we we sat down on the on the couch together and watched every episode. And every episode, he would get his hands. No one can see me, but he would get his hands up in fists. And when that horn hits mm-hmm. after the timpani, would you know come down like a conductor. That that big hit every time. And I I have fond memories of that. That's amazing. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, then, I remember tuning in specifically just to hear the theme. Yeah. Um, I never really caught on with the show, but that's, uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite things ever that Jerry Goldsmith wrote. Just, it's so simple too. It's so clean in the orchestration. Um, and I just wish he, I wish he was able to do more, um, for television. And I mean, he, I mean, he has a massive history in, in TV, but, uh, I think he won the Emmy award for that one too. I don't know. I'd have to look. I don't know off the top of my head, but it wouldn't surprise me. It's just, it's yeah. great. And Voyager itself is a fun show. Again, it it was the first Trek where I went back and rewatched. Oh, wow. Um, I was probably six or seven years ago when I was working at the university, and I had an hour lunch every day, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to rewatch Voyager. <laughs> so I sat down and rewatched it. And, you know, the, the, the good thing... I will say this, and Sam knows that my I have a, you know my issues with Game of Thrones. But what Game of Thrones yeah. did give us is it taught us that we can do TV in ten episodes. Mm-hmm. We yes. can have a ten episode Absolutely. season. Yeah. And Trek learned from that and said, you know what? With Discovery and Strange New Worlds, we can make ten really good episodes. Good. Yes. Yeah. Instead of making twenty-two episode seasons and only having you know, 10 good ones and having 10 okay ones and then two or three bad ones. Like we yep. can get rid of the mediocre and just put all of our efforts into having 10 really good episodes. Cause there are no wasted episodes in discovery or strange new worlds. In my opinion, I haven't seen all of Picard, so I don't know, but I would assume it'd be the same. 
Anyway, so we're going to travel back in time a little bit. We're not back in time, but we're going to, in, in the timeline from the TV shows, because we've we're, we're some movies we haven't really talked about. We've talked about basically the first six, right? We talked about yep. how we I mean, went well, from... You, you, missed, you missed, missed Trek 3, but a lot of people seem to want to skip that one for some reason. Well, you're right. <laughs> we did kind of skip it, and 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 we we also reviewed it uh, this month, uh, okay. and... And we had a good time with it. I, I I do like it. I think there there's you know the the rule of thumb is that the the third or the odd movies are the the bad ones and the even ones are the good ones. And I I made the the kind of comment which apparently was funny to many that it's the best bad one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now I think it's better than a couple of the even number ones. I think it's better than Nemesis and yes. Um. I might even argue that it's better than four. I don't know. Maybe not. It's mm-hmm. it's different maybe than not. four. Yeah. But I, it's not better than two. It's not better than six. It's not better than eight. So maybe, you know, maybe it's only better than Nemesis. I don't know. Yeah. But it does have one of my favorite scenes in, in movie history, and that is the stealing of the Enterprise. Right on. And we and I talked about it. I mean, Andrew can will confirm. We probably talked about that scene. We, I mean, we talked. We, that movie was that episode was hour and a half. <laughs> I probably talked about that scene yeah. for fifteen minutes <laughs> <laughs> because it's such a great scene. Everything it about is. it is great, and because it's got some some intrigue. There's a little spycraft going on. Uhura gets to to you know harass this poor kid with a phaser. <laughs> you get a you get a comic relief moment when 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 you know Scotty. Tells the turbo lift up your shaft, <laughs> and then he also sabotages the Federation ship, which is hysterical. I just, I just love that he, the, the, not only did he sabotage it, but he programmed it to make the screen say "Good morning, Captain." Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the Star Trek way of saying "F you," right? Yep. You know, your ship sucks, and I'm gonna break it. But it's this this great moment where they where they're stealing the Enterprise, and there's also a hacking moment in this movie too that my son mm-hmm. noticed. That Scotty has to hack the space space station doors to get them to open up, mm. and and so in the moment when it's happening, right, because you can hear it. There's an audio cue of Scotty hitting the buttons, and then that's when Kirk says, "And now, Mister Scott," and he goes, "I, sir." Like, what are you saying? He goes, the doors. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm working on it. You keep hearing him trying to open the doors, trying to open the doors until they finally open. And they have this great reaction shot of of them like, is it going to fit? And I think, Andrew, you made the comment that if they would have had the budget and the and the ability to, it would have been cool to see it scrape the doors and like peel off Just a little barely, bit of middle, yeah. you know? <laughs> it, that would have been cool. Yeah. But... But Eric, I mean, just feel free to take over because this is one of your favorite cues ever. Forever. Yeah, it's my favorite Star Trek cue. Where most Star Trek music fans and film music fans would pick the Enterprise, I think this one um, does more to save the scene. Andrew was talking about, you know, eliminating music in the motion picture and, and how different that film would be. Just imagine eliminating the music from this sequence and it just becomes slow moving spaceships and space dock that's it but what james horner does with this sequence with the music is he turns it into a, a blistering action sequence and that's 
the magic of this score and what Horner does. And the musical storytelling is also absolutely brilliant. But I do like the fact that uh, Leonard Nimoy trusted Horner to really amp up the tension and the excitement of the sequence because there's so many static shots in this sequence that I actually appreciate. Like there's one shot where the Enterprise comes around that star base and moves towards the camera. And it's almost like a 30 second shot. And then the, um, uh, the what's the other ships? The the, yeah, comes around the corner and there's not a single cut. And meanwhile, Horner's just ramping it up and ramping it up. And and so they, I mean, you, if you saw a sequence like that today, there'd be five billion cuts to make it exciting. But Nimoy trusted the scene to work. I mean, I just couldn't imagine being James Horner and looking at it and going, all right, what do I got to do to save this? And I'm not saying it's it's bad. It's just like, I've got to do a lot of dramatic heavy lifting here. And then when you insert the music, it, it becomes absolute magic. And then there's even moments within this queue where you're just able to soak in the beauty of the special effects. I that that space the, the space dock um, space station is one of my favorite designs in, in in all of Star Trek. And so when you get a really good view of it and just beautiful mo model work by Industrial Light and Magic, um, it just turns out to be one of my favorite sequences in Star Trek. And and the music, of course, is just. It's one of those quintessential long Horner cues as well. Horner was so well known for writing tracks, cues that were 8, 10, 12, 14, <laughs> 16 minutes long. Yeah. The thing is, where most composers would chop that up into about three, four minute bits and then slam it all together in post, he would conduct that thing from start to finish. And then he might add an insert, but he always liked the pure performance of it. So even if Let's say they were off time by half a second or whatever. He he appreciated the the human nature of the performance and, and not to get too technical in kind of fixing it all up. So if you hear some of his absolutely beast cues, I mean, if you think of uh, Legends of the Fall, the finale of Legends of the Fall and that massive end credit sequence, I think it's 16 minutes long and it's all done in one take. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, but uh, Star Trek 3 and Stealing Enterprise is just a, a magical sequence. And and we're this is a this is a, an 8-minute take. I mean, mm -hmm. if you listening in the background, the, the it's ramping up right there, boom. That's the relief where we the doors start to open. But we're still not sure if the Enterprise is going to fit. If you don't know what's going to happen, this movie, this scene, this building tension is the Excelsior. It's a better ship. It's a faster ship. It's a bigger ship. There's no way the Enterprise can limp away. How are they going to do it? So now we hit our hero cue, right? We, we get the hero cue there as the Enterprise has cleared space dock and is going to start to try to make her escape. And again, we're again if, if you don't know what's going to happen, like how are they going to do it? Here comes Excelsior, which the, the movie has already said a couple times, like, Oh, she's gonna break all of Enterprise's speed records and mm -hmm. and do all this stuff and and I love how the music cuts back, right? We like just listening to this. Oh, we're obviously on Excelsior because it sounds different. This is all right. Now we're back outside. Now we're we're watching the ships outside. This is the cue you just mentioned, Eric, where the Enterprise is going by the camera as Excelsior is coming around the kind of dish of the uh, station and getting ready to 
gear up for, for warp speed. And as it builds and builds, where the Enterprise warps away. Now the music changes. We're back on Excelsior. And we have the best pratfall in science fiction history. <laughs> where the Excelsior falls flat on its face. Yeah. And the strings just hold the tension. It does, and that's another great part of that cue right at the end, how yeah. long they sustain that yeah. note for. It's about 25 seconds. Yeah, and that's even over top of uh, you know seeing another shot of the, the Enterprise warping past the camera. It's really, uh, I kind of love that yeah. that hold there. Yeah, it's great. And, and the way that, that Nimoy conducts the shot, too, is the captain mm -hmm. looks down and sees... Have a good morning. And the voiceover is saying maximum velocity in five, four, <laughs> three, two, one. And it matches as the captain looks back to the viewfinder as the as the Excelsior putters to a stop. You know. Yep. And you know, I think Andrew, you mentioned in the uh, in the episode it would have it would have the only way to make it funnier, though it wouldn't have been appropriate, is if it would have made like a backfire noise. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like a 1950s cartoon sound. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, <laughs> you know, just dies, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's still such a great cue. And, and like, I mean, Sam, you listen to the cue. And, I mean, that's one of those things where, like, you almost need to watch the visual to really appreciate yeah. the cue, you know. like You need to watch it twice. Once on mute and then once with the music. Oh, yeah. To really appreciate what Horner did for that sequence, because yeah, because there's really not a lot of words in that sequence. Not no. really. I mean, once they get on the ship, right? Because you have to. They break yeah. once they break McCoy out of uh, the facility, and Sulu does a little kung fu on the on the security <laughs> guard that's like eleven inches taller than him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> where we we get the phrase "Don't call me tiny," but. I don't have it queued up. Sorry, Andrew. But, yeah, it's just such a great scene uh, mm -hmm. from there. So we're going to travel back forward to Star Trek Generations. Now, Generations is also an odd movie, an odd-numbered movie, which means it has its issues. I've said multiple times on this podcast and in every other opportunity I get that this was the first movie that my dad took me to, to see in the theater. So oh, wow. this movie has special meaning to me. And the score does too, because this was one of the first times where I, I sought out uh, a film score to buy. Now, it wasn't the first soundtrack mm -hmm. I ever bought. The first soundtrack I ever bought was The Wedding Singer. Um, not the same thing, but oh, wow. I liked... I liked uh, <laughs> it, there's some good 80s music in there. I liked all of that 80s music, and for some reason I was really... Also, I really like the Adam Sandler, you know, kill me, please. You know, that song, right? I, I, it cracked me up, so I bought that. <laughs> uh, anyway. And Generations, though, was the movie that they, they made to bridge the gap between the two franchises. We wanted to have a way to have 
you know, uh, how do we how do we bridge from the original cast to the next generation cast? Well, we we make a movie where we get to to do that, and of course they have to use some time travel magic and some other stuff, and you know it's fine. And unfortunately, they killed off Captain Kirk in a kind of meaningless way, but they did it. There you go. So they killed him, really. Yeah, they. I guess they. The, the the idea was that you can't have Captain Kirk and Picard living in the same timeline because you're gonna want to. If Captain Kirk's alive, then you're gonna want him to see him do things. Oh, uh, okay. But you know, Leonard ne- like Spock was still alive the whole time, and no one cared. You know. Yeah. Until he shows up in the Kelvin for the Kelvin movies. So. And then, like, even William Shatner was annoyed. He's like, well, why why aren't I? Because your character died. <laughs> like, <laughs> you died on that planet, you know? So, and that always annoyed me. It was just one of the things that annoyed me about that movie. But what doesn't annoy me is, of course, the film score. And this cue that you picked for us, Eric, is called Outgunned. I assume this is the battle between the Klingon ship and the Enterprise. Uh, Yes. Yeah, so... This is where the Enterprise, well, starts to um, see its demise. Um, but I just, I, I love the. I mean, it could have been between this one or, or there's another cute, beautiful elegy for Inside the Nexus and the Christmas Hug, and I absolutely love that cue as well. Um, great use of chorus, which I think Cliff Eidelman was the first one to bring chorus into um, a Star Trek film, but. Um, I think Dennis McCarthy gets a bit of flack for this score because he was the the TV guy. He was one of a maybe half dozen of composers who worked on the Next Generation series, but it was between like him and Jay Chataway that was doing the most most of the work. And McCarthy scored the the season or the series finale. And in order to make the the jump to the the, the motion picture generations seamless. Uh, they decided to keep Dennis McCarthy, a, you know, a television composer. He, he'd done some films as well to, to do this film. So um, I really like it. And I think the action music is absolutely thunderous. And um, it really, really does uh, ramp up the tension. And I and I think there are moments within The Next Generation where Dennis McCarthy got to write a few cues like this, but not with the same sustained energy, because after Best of Both Worlds... Uh, Rick Berman basically told the composers, I don't want anything that's going to stand out. I don't want any themes. I just literally want musical wallpaper. And so that's what we got for the last three seasons of, or three or four seasons of, of, of Star Trek, the next generation. So to see Dennis McCarthy kind of uh, come out of his shell, that wallpaper shell <laughs> that he was forced to, uh, you know, compose for the next generation, this is what he's capable of. And he writes some absolutely stunning blistering action material and you, and you really hear uh the the a version of this action cue um during the enterprise uh, b sequence at the beginning where uh we all think that's where kirk dies and uh then it's um reworked for this outgun sequence and i think it's just absolutely fantastic um but as i said there was another there's another great and it's it's inside the nexus and it is um, actually quite a, a personal 
uh, cue for for Dennis McCarthy, uh, mainly because, and if I can remember this correctly, I think his father died um, around the time that he was working on it. He was really sick for a long time. And so what McCarthy was able to do was write sort of an, an elegy for him into this film score and used it for um, Picard's loss um, because Picard loses his uh, grandson. No, sorry, not grandson. Is it? Who no, is it? it's his, it's his brother God's, and it's his Godson brother's like son. Yeah. It's or the his, last of the Picards. It's the last of the Picards because his brother who's a Picard, a Picard um, and then it was his, and it was his son too. Yeah. Who was very so, young. He was like 13 or 11 or something right. like that. Right. It was in a fire or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, McCarthy was able to latch up on to that aspect of the score or the uh, the story and was able to write this beautiful elegy because when Picard is sucked up into the Nexus um, and within the Nexus, you can basically do B or, um, you know, go anywhere that you want. And so he's in a... Uh, a home back in, I think, France with a family and he has kids of his own. And uh, so there's this just gorgeous, gorgeous uh, cue. It's called a Christmas hug that is all, uh, it kind of, um, you hear a preview of it during the, the main title of this movie, which is actually quite odd as well. It's not a big fanfare. It's just kind of this twinkly synthesized vocal uh, main title. So, um, those well, are two and it's outstanding also, cues. And it's also a very different intro for Trek because usually Trek is just credits with a star field. Right. And then and then we get into the meat of the movie. And this one, it you're you're the camera is following a bottle of champagne, Chateau Picard. And mm-hmm. and you're like, what are we looking at? Like, why are we watching this? Until it then you see it strike the hull of the Enterprise B. And it's it's christening. It's the yeah. Uh, it's christening, and then and and the, and the Enterprise B is a. It's the same ship uh, class as Excelsior. It's the Excelsior class ship. Um, but you're 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 100 right. That theme is magical. It it is really beautiful and sad at the same time. Um, like you said, it really does cue in onto. It's still kind of crazy to think, like in the twenty third century, you could have a house fire that could claim a life, right? Just, right. Yeah. <laughs> see, but like they needed, they needed Picard to have this moment. Yeah. Because they they do this, and this is pretty clever, is that when he goes into the Nexus, spoiler, he goes into the Nexus, he has to make a choice. He can stay there and be happy forever. And have a family, and his nephew is alive, and he can then be there to watch his nephew grow up and fall in love and go to school and and all the things that he because re- there's a moment where he's talking to Counselor Troy, and he's crying. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, Patrick Stewart is weeping about the things that his nephew was not going to get to do, and it's you know it's hard, it's rough, and. So then he has to make a choice in the movie to either stay here in this moment or try to go back and save the lives of you know countless millions. And yeah. he has to, and he makes the choice. He has because he does what a captain would do, what a hero would do. The hero has to make the sacrifice. And he does. 
Um, the cue played while we were, were talking there, and the one thing that the cue does is that we that a lot of movies do. It has nothing to do with this particular composer. Is we want to build a little bit of tension. We just kind of repeat them the notes over and over again until we have the 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 resolution. Yeah, whenever I hear stuff like that, it reminds me of Die Hard. Yeah, Die Hard, Star Wars, yeah. uh, Bishop's Countdown. Um, it's uh, Giacchino's done it. <laughs> they all do it. They yeah, they all, all do it. it. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's basically Traycraft. riff on Mars. Um, yeah. You hear that in Mars all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But I think John Williams is really the first one to introduce that sort of style um, or that, that that device in uh, in Star Wars, uh, just as yeah. the, just before the Death Star explodes. But then it became like a a trope and. Yeah, Bishop's Countdown, I think, was probably the most famous version of that because it was used in trailers all the time in the 80s and 90s. So, And what's happening in, that mo- in the moment in the movie, uh, I guess, for Sam and Andrew, is that this, this bird of prey has uh, found out what the shield frequency is of, of the Enterprise through some tradecraft of its own. And they're just beating the hell out of the Enterprise because the shields aren't holding up. You know, the, the torpedoes and the lasers are going right through it. And so... They, they figure out that they can force the bird of prey to cloak, and when a, when a bird of prey cloaks, the shields turn off, and mm-hmm. so they they do this thing, and the shield the, the ship cloaks, and then they fire a single torpedo, and so that that musical bum 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 is basically we're waiting for the torpedo to hit the ship. Now they do something that they do in Trek every now and then, which of course pisses me off is the ship explode the, the bird of prey explodes it's the 100% exact shot of the bird of prey exploding from undiscovered country yep it is uh, the same uh, shot uh, and so the joke uh, i made when i when i saw it in the theater with dad i literally leaned over and i said oh i guess all bird of prey's explode the same <laughs> <laughs> like they didn't even reverse the shot i mean like, at least do that yeah it's it's it is kind of annoying. It, it, it yeah. really is. And they, and I understand budget. They, they reuse some other shots. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of what you call establishing shots, right? Or transition shots where we're just, we're letting you know that we're now, we were here and now we're here, uh, especially of the bird of prey in the fourth movie that they use just from the third movie. And it's like, well, it's the same ship. I guess you don't have to reshoot some of that stuff. You but, it's you can tell that that's what it is. It's fine. That's a little bit forgivable. But this is a death scene, right? Like this this is the this is the villain that's been plaguing you for half of the movie, who oh, has been gosh. kicking your butt. You so, couldn't you couldn't have shot something different. It's the dramatic peak, right? I mean, it's wow. It's not the it's not the climax of the movie because like yeah. this thing happens. We still have to have Kirk. And Picard still have to defeat uh, a Clockwork Orange guy, and the Enterprise still has to crash uh, onto the planet. So yeah, which which has always led me to the big one of the biggest plot holes in the history of cinema is in this movie, because Picard has this nexus. It's this magic ribbon floating through space, <laughs> and he can go to any point in time, any point in history. Right, he can go anywhere. And 
the movie has him go back to the planet where he has to win a fist fight against um what's the actor's name? Soren. Ian Malcolm. Ian No, not Ian Malcolm. Ian uh, Ian McKellen. McKellen. McKellen McDonald. Mike yeah, McDonald. McDowell. (laughs) We'll get there eventually. (laughs) A clockwork worm. Sound it out. They have to have a fist fight with, with, with Captain Kirk. Like he brings him back so they can win a fist fight so they can save the day. But like, you know, how about go back to when you're on the Enterprise and he's there with you because literally he has a meeting with him and he says, I need to go do my research. Just go back to that point and go, hey, I know who you are and what you're up to. You're in the brig. And then we yeah. get to save the Enterprise and half the crew that died uh, during the battle of, with the Bird of Prey. Or, I don't know, even further back so you could save your your brother and his son. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, when you create this plot device and you don't use it to its potential, you, you leave yourself up for nerds like me to complain about it later, years, years yeah. later. So <laughs> It's just, it's literally a deus ex machina, but they use it wrong. Yes, so yeah. <laughs> that's true. You're right. Uh, so, uh, we we have talked about first contact a little bit and the the main theme, but I am going to play a little bit of the main theme because well, it's going to sound really familiar. We get that. We get to have the introduction. Hey. This is clearly Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> this is this is a Star Trek movie. And then it changes. And does something and that, that quest theme in the timpani from Star Trek 5. And it, yeah, and it does something very unique. I love it. Okay, this is the one where I stopped what I was doing. I was like, holy cow, I love this. Mm-hmm. This is a movie about revenge and violence and, you know, like, this movie is a, it, it's a, it's a Moby Dick allegory, right? To, to Captain Picard is, uh, oh gosh, I should have started it. The Borger Moby Dick, Captain Picard, is Ishmael, Captain Ishmael. And he nearly loses all of his crew trying to stop the Borg because he must make them pay. He must hurt them for the things that they did to him. And we start the movie off with this beautiful theme. You know, like it's not like in Star Trek VI where the intro is, it sounds like Mars, where it sounds like war, like you're, you're getting geared up for war. You get this beautiful melody, and it's just lovely. Well, even uh, Captain Ahab was uh, in the right when he was first going out fishing. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he wasn't crazy yet. Yeah, yet. And I mean, and, it, and it's so much a Moby Dick allegory that they literally they mention it in the movie. I mean, it's it's called out in the movie. You know, he he's. He's he's yelling at his crew. He he calls Worf a coward. Where we have this great moment where uh, Worf stares at him. He says, "If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand." And 
and then somebody else, a, a new character to the movie, has to go in and say, "Okay, Ahab, you go get your whale. The rest of us are going to leave because we don't want to die here." And then he kind of has his moment where he realizes that, yeah, he is that guy, and he doesn't want to be that guy. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just this beautiful theme, and it's like I said, the, the movie is about very different subjects. And here we have in this really beautiful moment. So it's great. It was also d- yeah. directed by Jonathan Frakes. That's right. Uh, the, guy, the guy that played Riker. He directed that. So Did he really? So they, they used a lot of actors as their directors. I think. On the show, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you're, okay. you're right. Yeah. Even in the past, you're right. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. Because they used Spock and Kirk yep. for. Uh, yeah. That's right. And well, and Leonard Nimoy would go on to direct some other things. I mean, you know, yep. Two Men and a Baby, and I think a handful of other things. I don't know how much William Shatner directed after his movie. I know he produced a handful of things. Um, but Frakes had directed a handful of Next Gen episodes and mm-hmm. had kind of shown that he could do it. You know, it's not like Kirk had seven seasons of TOS and directed, you know, five to ten episodes in those seven years where he could really get some experience. He just didn't have that. Whereas Frakes, you know, Frakes had that experience, and then he directs this movie, which a lot of people is their favorite Trek movie. And and frankly, Sam, I think this one probably would be yours too, uh, outside of the Kelvin movies. I think you would really like this one because yeah. it's probably the most action. It also has some really fun moments, like some legitimate humor, and it's got James Cromwell, who's great. Yeah, he um, is great as the inventor of uh, of of warp technology. And what makes him so such an interesting character is that he's kind of anti Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know, Star oh. Trek is all about the greater good and coming together and and whatever. And he literally says in the movie, "I built this thing so I could make money." Because yeah. I wanted to go live on an island with drinks and women. Like, that's why I did this thing. And it ends up being the, the, the single greatest humanity, you know, thing in the history of humanity. Uh, because it would, it would bring the Vulcans here and show, the, show the, the world that we're not alone and thus creating the way for all of the things. Um, Insurrection is the next movie. It is my least favorite. It's a bad movie. I would rather watch Star Trek five, five times over this movie. <laughs> I just, there's not a whole lot about it that I really enjoy, uh, but Jonathan Frakes also directed it. And, but Jerry Goldsmith is, you know, gets to return. And we also get some more just really beautiful mu- music out of it. I mean, uh, and F Murray Abraham is the bad guy which and he's, he's great. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything bad. He's really good in it. So it's not his fault. It's a bad movie. I think it's right. other people's. But we get to have this new theme, which again, yeah. very lovely. The, the Yeah, the, the, the main theme is the Baku village theme, which is, you hear, hear it right off the top of the, the main title. Um, but I think you are playing How Old Are You in New Sight. Yes. And... Again, this kind of gets away from what many would consider to be, you know, traditional science fiction music. And there aren't too many, I would say, love scenes or even love themes 
in Star Trek up to this point. Goldsmith did write a love theme for Star Trek The Motion Picture, and now we get this love theme between Picard and this Baku uh, woman. Now, this is they're they're essentially falling in love, but during this sequence, they're having a a nighttime walk, and they're talking about um, you know how is it that she looks so young yet she's what 200, 300 years old, and you know the the healing properties of 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 the planet itself and everybody starts feeling um you know younger and and whatnot but it's such a beautiful simple love theme that then transitions into a wonderful sequence where Jordy again because of the regenerative uh, properties of this planet um was able to grow new eyes And so he's seeing a sunset for the very first time. And again, Goldsmith is just playing to that personal connection uh, between the music and the the character here where, you know, what would it feel like musically if you got to see a sunset for the very first time? And so that's what I love about this cue because the rest of the score is... It's big action, kind of kind of generic action music. Um, you know, Goldsmith action music around this time all kind of started sounding the same to me. Um, but the more intimate moments, especially in this film, is where Goldsmith really shines. And there's not many moments like this in this in this film. So when you do get a moment like this, um, Goldsmith definitely um, comes up with the goods. Yeah, absolutely. That that moment, you know, with Jordy, and it's it is a wonderful moment. Again, the 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 movie is one of those where the the sum of the parts is worse than the sum is worse than the parts. Yeah. Uh, like there's some really lovely parts, like that moment, uh, the moment when Picard shows up and says, "How old are you?" And they yes. have this, you know, it's just, yeah. it's it's great. But then you have moments like Worf is going through puberty again and has, yeah. has pimples. And Beverly and Troy are talking about how firm their breasts feel. And then, and then Data has to go repeat it because it's funny because it's Data. You know, yeah. like, what are we doing? And then, and, then, and then they have the showdown between the drones and the crew. Like, why would drones do that? It doesn't make any sense. Like... Yeah. Imagine, Sam, these drones that are autonomous, right? They're they're uh-huh. robots, and their job is to tag you with a little microchip that forces you to be beamed off the planet because the, the bad guys want to uh, take the energy of the rings of this planet so that they can use it to sell and create healing properties for themselves. But uh-huh. it'll destroy the planet. And they though are horrible bad guys. They don't want... To kill, they don't want to commit genocide, so mm-hmm. they they uh, are for they're forcing people off the planet, a, a forced relocation, manually, individually with these little drones, and the, the the crew of the Enterprise are there to kind of help protect them, and they're shooting them with whatever. And there's a moment when like five or six of these drones they come down and they stop shooting, and the crew just stand there with their phasers, and the camera pans from one to the other as they crack their necks and cock the gun it's oh god it's so cheesy and bad it's like Riker, did you like freaks did you just watch a bunch of westerns 
before you did this? <laughs> like, it's so bad. It's bad, guys. I don't. I don't. If any of my other Trek brethren that are listening are arguing with me through their phones right now, that's fine. I just, it's not a good moment. It is. It isn't. <laughs> no, the, the whole thing. The problem is, it's just a very, very expensive. Uh, two-parter episode that's all this is it's a it's like a leftover episode that didn't film for next generation i mean this would make a fine two-parter somewhere in between you know seasons five to seven but as a movie um and i also think they got gypped out of the special effects as well i don't think ilm worked on this one i think a lot of it was all cgi and no models or something to that effect but it just looks cheap too yeah, ILM did not work on this one. It was like digital domain, I think, or something. Mm-hmm. And you can tell there's some moments yeah. where you can really tell. Yeah. And and yeah, the ship is is uh, is all CGI, and that's fine. But uh, Sam, they <laughs> they they gave Riker a joystick. He literally flies the Enterprise with a joystick. The Riker maneuver. Yeah. Oh jeez. <laughs> He he says or, computer activate manual control and out of the floor comes a joystick and he stands there. Now the funny part is I, I don't know if you noticed this, Eric, but you know Jonathan Frakes is like six four, right? He's a yeah. big man, mm-hmm. and it's like the prop department couldn't build the podium tall enough, so he has to <laughs> he has to hunch over to grab this nineteen oh, what is this ninety uh, eight era. <laughs> joystick that you would get at you know at comp usa and he looks so <laughs> awkward doing it and then there's a button on the joystick that doesn't fire things it releases a, it's it's it makes no sense it's so dumb oh that's awesome gosh uh we will do it for the podcast one day i swear <laughs> next the next month of trek we're gonna do actually this would be a good idea sam honestly the next month of trek yeah. we'll do we'll just do Generations, first contact, insurrection, and the nemesis. We'll just do those four, yeah, in a row. I think that'll probably make the most sense. Um, I'm, boom. I'm making it official. We're doing that at some point <laughs> in the future. All right. But well, I was going to say we'll give some time in between that. Oh yeah, yeah. No, we're not doing that in January or whatever. It'll it'll be. Yeah. It, it might be next November. I don't know. Yeah. It, it'll be a while ways away. Assuming we're still podcasting then. The last movie that's not in the, again in the Kelvin universe, and I know we're we're getting close to that two hour mark, but is Star Trek Nemesis, and um, I like it. Some people hate it. I don't. This is not uh, Goldsmith, correct? Sorry, sorry. Say that again. Nemesis. We're on to Nemesis. Yeah, this is Goldsmith. This, this is, is one Gold- of his very, very last scores. He was very sick while he was writing the music for this film. Mm. Okay. And uh, this movie introduces Tom Holland, not Tom Holland, Tom Hardy to the world. And, Tom Holland. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, Tom, Tom Holland, I don't think, was born yet. But we get a, no. new, a young Tom Hardy, and it's uh, it's an interesting movie. It's got some okay special effects. They did use some model work. Uh, but we still, again, we still get the theme, the intro. But unlike... Insurrection and First Contact, which we get the theme and then a very pretty, lovely theme. This goes straight into, you know, there's your theme. Yep, there you go. I'm going to fast forward. And we go straight into this kind of 
uneasy, you know, we're on Romulus now, which we've never been in the film. We're seeing a new place, and it's a little different. It's a little weird. So we, we, get, a, we get a weird theme. Not weird, but, you know, just different, you know. Mm-hmm. A different motif? Yeah, definitely. Different yeah, instrumentation. Yeah, it's the bad guy music. Yeah. It's the, mm-hmm. the Riemann music. But, yeah, again, this, this movie, I liked this movie. I think it's okay. It has its issues. But, this again, the score... One of the one of the better moments of the of the movie. I, I, I don't know why I couldn't remember that it was Goldsmith, but it, uh, it it hits all the things it needs to do. This movie is a little bit more actiony than the last one. I think they're trying to get some of that action feel from First Contact. I mean, this movie has a very long space battle. I mean, it's like the last third of the movie is a space battle mm-hmm. between the Enterprise and the the Riemann warship Scimitar. And uh, yeah, that's really all I have to say about that movie. It's fine. <laughs> I just I just find that when you when you see movies like this with you know big spaceship battles in Star Trek, they're they're all trying to somehow match the magic of Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan, I think, is just the, the for me it's it's the best Star Trek film out there. And I think everyone is trying to remake it somehow. Not directly, but sometimes they do directly make it, remake it. But it's just like, oh, we've got to have a big climactic action battle sequence. And and I just wish they would learn their lesson from something like First Contact, which has an exciting um, action sequence, but it, you know, it's the flight of the Phoenix. And uh, but it ends on a more positive note where the Vulcans eventually, you know, meet the humans. It's all very it's all very uh, nice and positive. And you don't have to have that huge space battle at the end in order to to say, hey, you know, isn't this an exciting Star Trek movie? And, um, you know, I think that's what you get in Insurrection. That's what you get in Nemesis. And a lot of the the Calvin timeline stuff is it's more action Trek than it is Star Trek. You know, discovering you know new worlds, new civilizations, and things of that sort, and I think that sometimes that's forgotten. And so, Nemesis has an interesting premise. Again, this would work as a great uh, two-parter um, on Next Generation, but as a film itself, I I just don't know whether it succeeds. Um, there are some great moments, honestly. There's some really solid acting. Um, the direction is is pretty good. It's done by Stuart Baird. Um, but uh, ultimately, it's a it's a bit uneven, and then it goes for that big thirty minute action climax that's supposed to be you know somehow a, a great spectacle, and it, it, it I think it falls rather flat. And then there's that sacrifice by by Data, which is sort of sort of supposed to you know be reminiscent of Spock's sacrifice from Wrath of Khan, and it kind of falls flat as well. So um, it's not the send off I think the Next Generation crew should have had. Um, I wish there was a better movie, um, and I don't particularly like what's happening in Picard anyway. So, um, you know, I think First Contact's the best of the generation pictures. But as for the score, I mean, yeah, again, Goldsmith's extremely sick here, but he, he's he manages to unleash this heartfelt theme for Shinzon, who is the baddie in the movie, but again, Goldsmith is digging 
deeper into this character and finds the character's loneliness. And he definitely is lonely. He's a human amongst aliens. And um, eventually that thematic material turns into just pure anger. But if you listen to the end credits of this score, that's the first time we hear a full statement of the complete theme. And it's not the angry version of it. It is this lonely, almost childlike version of the theme. And it is uh, mostly, I think, woodwinds. I think oboe plays a big part in the in the theme. And that's what Goldsmith is highlighting in this score. And I find that to be absolutely fascinating that he was able to dig deeper and 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 really extract that out of the character and put it in in musical terms. Another great cue. Um, and I wish that this theme was actually used as the theme for Picard because it really it it was written for Picard. And it's the the battle um, uh, stations cue. And we get to hear this classic sort of Star Trek X-esque heroic theme, this statement, uh, almost a march as um, Picard is uh, walking the corridors of the Enterprise as the crew prepares for for the battle. And it's just this noble theme that, man, if it was reused for the Picard series, I would have just lost my mind. And it's a theme that doesn't pop up anywhere else. It's just this lonely theme in this single cue. And it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And again, just remember, Goldsmith is sick, but he's still uh, forging ahead and crafting these these new themes uh, when any other composer would probably just say, forget it, give it up, and hand it off to somebody else. And um, Nemesis is is pretty solid, but those two aspects of this score are really special. All right. Well, we are well into two hours now into our episode, and we still have three <laughs> more movies to talk about. So uh, I know that these are kind of Sam's favorite movies uh, mm-hmm. of the Trek, and we all love the Giacchino score, and I'm going to do him a disservice by kind of combining the three into one segment here. <laughs> and I apologize, but again, uh, if you're still listening, God bless you. But... <laughs> but the one good thing that we did with these three movies, and and I know the movies themselves have some some issues. Uh, again, you said they try to make a remake of uh, Wrath of Khan. J.J. Abrams yeah. literally remade it with Into Darkness. And J.J. is good at some things, but one of the things he likes to do is remake movies, which is evidenced mm-hmm. by yeah. his remake of A New Hope in the form of <laughs> The Force Awakens. Uh, at least the 09 Star Trek is kind of its own thing. I mean, yes. it's pretty original in, in what's happening on screen. Uh, and we get a, a new origin story with Kirk and Spock and things like that. The 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 one big thing that he changes, which is interesting, because in Wrath of Khan, we learned that Kirk changed, he reprogrammed the Kobayashi Maru so that he could win it. And mm-hmm. in that movie, he says he got accommodation. In this movie, he gets reprimanded and nearly <laughs> drummed out of Starfleet. So I wonder why one worked and the other one didn't. I don't know. Yeah, but who knows? I guess maybe Tyler Perry wasn't in the uh, the original timeline. <laughs> <laughs> so, which, by the way, that, that, that Star Trek movie was the first time Tyler Perry appeared on a film set that was not a Tyler Perry production. He's such a Trek fan. He, he, was, he, he wanted oh, wow. to. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. 
So we are going to talk about Giacchino here for a little bit. So the three cues that you asked me to pick are mm. really all great cues. There really isn't a bad cue. Uh, my dad loves the the little puns that each cue is named for. That's uh, Michael Giacchino's specialty. He's been doing that since I think it's the Incredibles. But even on his score sheets, he was doing that uh, for like video games and television shows. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at like the 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 in credits is what they call the end credits for the Incredibles. And so, yeah, um, but you know, actually, I, I know this is going long, but um, for the Rogue One soundtrack, the producers asked him to not use the puns and use regular track titles. So there are regular track titles on the back of the CD. However, he put all the punny track titles on the inside of the liner note booklet. So he did all the punny stuff anyway. Nice. Nice. So this cue that I'm playing as we talk here is called Labor of Love. And it's the moment where it's such... I will give JJ some credit here. We have no sound effects except... We have some muted sound effects... Mm-hmm. No dialogue and just this music while two things are happening. The, 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 the USS Kelvin is attacking or being attacked by a, a ship four times its size and significantly outgunned. And Kirk's dad, um, George Kirk, is there to fight, fight him off while his wife is on the shuttlecraft giving birth to Jim Kirk. And the, the, the Kelvin is being destroyed... And eventually we would have a death. We would see his death. All while we have this wonderful, beautiful music happening. I mean, it's heart-wrenching. I mean, it's it's almost like it's a death scene. Yeah. I mean, it is, is, but... Chikino did this for six seasons in Lost, and he brought it out in full force in this film. And I have never, never, not once cried during a Star Trek film, not even when Spock died. This one, son of a bitch, Giacchino, I I was just bawling. And I mean, we're only 10 minutes into this new Star Trek movie. And I'm like, oh my God, you did it again. And it is, I just watched it about an hour before I came onto this show. And it is still one of the most heart-wrenching emotional moments, I think, in any film that I've ever seen. And you're right, it's J.J. Abrams just dialing back the sound effects. And when you get a chance to let the music do the, the storytelling, especially with a cue like this, it's a home run, and uh, there was—I'm pretty sure there's not a dry eye in the house when, when uh, we all first saw this in the theater. Yeah, it, it is a great score. It also again gave us the the other thing that I love. And I don't have the cue, but the other thing that I do love is—and it was so funny. I remember going to the theater to watch it with my wife and saying, "If I don't hear." The, the Star Trek theme, I'm going to be annoyed. <laughs> and you don't get the Star Trek theme until the end credits, until the very end. And I remember in the moment being incredibly annoyed 
And then after I watched it the second time in the theater, realizing I get why he did it. Because this movie, it takes the entire movie to establish the crew of the Enterprise. Once we get the crew and they work as a crew, now it's Star Trek. Now they're the crew and now we can have the theme. They had to earn it. And I freaking love that he did that. I just love it. And and, and Giacchino struggled with that theme because he he wanted to write something that was equal to Goldsmith and Horner's material and all the themes that came before him. And, I mean, that's a lot of pressure to put on oneself. Yeah, Um, especially when this is like, it's like he was his first, well, it wasn't his first film. He'd done Incredibles before that, but... Oh yeah, he'd done a whole um, bunch of stuff. He had done that. a handful of films. I meant like to go from TV to film um, is a is a big step. Yeah, and um, that was one of my biggest complaints with the Harry Potter franchise. They went from John Williams, John Williams, John Williams. I can't remember who did the fourth one, but the fourth Patrick one was Doyle, one. which is great, great. And then the fifth one, Nicholas Hooper, it's yeah. it just nosedived. It was. Mm-hmm. There's nothing epic in that thing at all. And it's because he was a TV guy. All of the music Mostly that's good, yeah. um, all the music that was good in that are transition moments. So it's, anyway, that's that's enough of that. Um, I, I can go on, and Andrew and Sam have both heard me go on many times about my displeasure for those. The last cue I am going to play uh, for this, I didn't play the Lower Decks theme, but Go seek it out. It's, it's worth it. Is uh, A Night on the Yorktown. And this is kind of the last time uh, Trek gives us some beautiful, sweeping, sexy shots of a thing. And in this case, it's not the Enterprise. It's the space station, the, the Yorktown, which, again, we, we talked about last week, is a callback to Enterprise or to Star Trek itself because the original ship was going to be called the Yorktown. Until the producers came in and said, "No, we, you can't. It, no one's gonna care about the USS Yorktown," so they changed it to the Enterprise. But that's why it's called this. But we get a good two minutes, minute maybe and a half, which is a long time, to just look at this beautiful thing, and we get this great music. Once again, there's no sound effect. It's just imagery and. And this this beautiful music as the uh, Enterprise is going to go go park and have a good time. <laughs> get this beautiful trumpet lick here and then this cue ends rather on a sad note because this is when Spock has discovered has has been told that Spock Prime Leonard Nimoy's character Spock has died Uh, that's because the actor Leonard Nimoy did pass away before filming and so they wrote that into the, the script of the movie, which I thought was just wonderful. I love how they did that. I thought it was great. 
and just a really great tribute for for Leonard Nimoy and for the character Spock. That was great. Well, I think that is a good place to wrap things up here. Any last thoughts, anyone that you want to say, Andrew, Sam, any last things you want to talk about the music of Trek? No, I'm just very glad that it's in the world and that it exists because it is something that I will just put on from time to time as a part of my, uh, you know, Spotify scores movie score playlist and just relax and listen to it because it's awesome all of it great um either sam's controller has died or he himself has (laughs) fallen asleep (laughs) as this episode has gone late into the night um eric any last thoughts yeah, I, I I think Trek music is uh, some of the most varied music you're going to hear in a franchise. And as much as it would be great to hear, let's say, Jerry Goldsmith's theme and his themes that he developed in the motion picture, you know, work in Star Trek 2 and 3 and 4 and all that sort of stuff. Um, What the other composers brought with them were just as memorable. But what I also do appreciate is that it stays within a similar template or style. And for me, I'm a big uh, orchestral, classic Hollywood film score fan. And the majority of these scores fit within that template and i love that they're they're big they're bold they're thematic they're exciting they're heartfelt emotional and that all works for me and even though i don't like um a majority of the new television music with the exception of uh, milamad's um strange new worlds it still goes down that orchestral template unlike what Star Wars is doing now where everything's just hitting electronics and drones, especially in television. So there is an appreciation within Star Trek for the, the, the voice of Star Trek, which actually was established first by all those wonderful composers on the, the original series with courage and Steiner and freed and Kaplan and Dunning, um, all writing those fabulous television scores. And that tradition is still alive in in the films that they made and the television shows that they're making now. So um, that's what I really love about Trek music. Very well said. Sam, any last uh, thoughts there? No, um, I'm back. Um, apparently I was muted or something. So, um, no, I, I'm glad it, um, with Andrew. I enjoy it. I love the diversity. I love... I love the different sounds from all the different composers. I, I, I think this is a great compilation of music. That's going to be our show. Um, Eric, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. I knew this was going to be a long episode. and, <laughs> and uh, always, These things always are. <laughs> and that, and that yeah. is okay. I think that's okay. And, um, you know, if, if, if people are daunted when they see the download at two hours and 20 minutes or whatever, then they can break it up and uh, absorb it however they want. But, 
Uh, or it, listen to it in, uh, you know, time and a half. Yeah, yeah. Well, the music will sound real fun at time and a half. Yeah, yeah. Because I do know <laughs> that people... That's a different way of experiencing the music. Yeah, I know people do listen to our show at time and a half, so that would be funny. Uh, so, Eric, please tell our listeners where they can find your show. You're celebrating what? Like, I think Trek's been around for 53 years. You're pretty close to that, right? I'm at 26. Yeah, so yeah. pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if you if you're interested in in, in listening to more uh, movie music, TV music, video game music, even hearing interviews from people who work within the industry, then you can check out Cinematic Sound Radio or the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, and you can find it easily by going to my website at cinematicsound.net or just find Cinematic Sound Radio on your favorite podcatcher. Your um, six-part series on John Williams was fantastic. I thank you. Highly I, recommend. If anyone <laughs> likes John Williams at all, go find that 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 thing that you did. It is abs- You will learn more about John Williams. You'll learn things about John Williams. I mean, the three I know the three of us are John Williams fans. Andrew and Sam. Mm-hmm. You will learn stuff about the man you didn't know about. It's go absorb that as quickly as you can. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's the best thing I have ever done. So I'm really proud of that. And I'm I'm so glad it turned out the way it did. There are a few little mistakes here and there. I still have to correct them. I haven't had a chance to do them. But they're minor. But besides that, it's um it was ambitious and I'm glad it turned out as good as it did. And I'm trying not to pat myself on the back, but when I listened back to it after it was all done, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty solid. Yes, it was absolutely uh, more than solid. It was uh, exceptional, in my opinion. Thank you. Uh, but that is going to do it. You may go find our stuff at cheapseatreviews.libsyn.com. There you can find links to our other social medias. Um, go buy some merchandise. That would be really cool, too. Help support the show financially if you can. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, all those places. I will, you know, I will talk to you, and that is fun. That's it. That's going to do it for us. Next week, um, we're going to be doing, though technically still in November, we're actually going to be doing The Gentleman, the, uh, which we recorded a long time ago. But we're actually going to release The Gentleman. So uh, John, uh, John T. Bowles from the Open Pike Night podcast joined us to talk about The Gentleman, the Guy Ritchie film. So very excited for you all to hear that. And that's going to do it for us. On behalf of Eric, Andrew, and Sam, this is Sean saying thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. This is Cheap Seat Reviews.